Good evening. My name is Roy Foster. I'm the Carroll Professor of Irish History in this university. And it's my very happy duty as chair of the board of electors, of the Ford Lectures, to welcome you today. The James Ford Lectures constitute a major event in the Oxford calendar and also in the career of the elected lecturer. Over the past 50 odd years, the series has given rise to many memorable performances and important books, too many indeed to mention. Conventionally, the subjects rotate through the medieval, early modern, and modern periods of history, embracing a wide range of themes from authoritative figures in the field, at once summing up the themes of their work and laying down a benchmark for the future. They will continue for the next five weeks with, I may add, a drinks reception here in the schools for all those attending after the second lecture next week. Not that you will need, not that you will need any such inducement to hear this year's lecturer. Stephen Gunn put his stamp on the early Tudor era long before it became the stuff of TV dramas and Booker Prizes. The suggestive description of Thomas Cromwell as an apparently untrained but widely traveled Putney boy dates from Gun 1995, not Mantel 2012. <laughs> Much of his working life has been Oxford-based, beginning as an undergraduate at Merton and progressing to a path-breaking doctoral thesis with Cliff Davis published as Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk in 1988, a book which through one man's rise and rise, including an interesting series of marriages, shone new light into the opportunist politics and culture of Henry VIII's court. After a research fellowship at the University of Newcastle, he returned to Merton where he has nurtured his own school of graduate students as well as playing a key role in the university and faculty. And above all, writing the books and articles which have firmly established him as an original and highly influential presence in the complex and often contested world of Tudor historiography. Dr. Gunn's next book in 1995 was a path-breaking study of early Tudor government, and much more. More than one reviewer described it as masterful, and so it has remained. Entering the territory heavily marked by Eltonian and post-Eltonian warfare, Dr. Gunn's widely acclaimed work judiciously complicated the narrative of change and continuity and the impact of the upheavals of the 1530s. Moving from the world of the parish constable to the theme of empire, the book illuminates the intersections of government, bureaucracy, and monarchy, while never forgetting that the issues involved real people acting under the pressures of their time. And I think that could be said for all his work, including a marvelous study of chivalry, a suggestive book putting English experience in the comparative context of the contemporary Netherlands, very many seminal articles, and recently, a large ESRC-funded research project using coroner's courts to accumulate riveting details about how ordinary people lived and even more died in 16th century England, a project which originated 
in Dr. Gunn's wish to find out how dangerous recreational archery really was. <laughs> the tone of his work is characteristic. It blends laconic and lapidary summings up with a humane judiciousness, and above all, a recognition of the importance of individual players. Vivid quotations out of the mouths of real people light up all his writing, as do striking rhetorical questions. As long ago as 1983, floating his new ideas on early Tudor government in a discussion paper, he remarked, it's in looking at individuals that we catch both the uncertainties and the excitements of the Henrikian Reformation, and that we receive a salutary antidote to the historian's tendency to over-categorize his evidence and to over-rationalize his theories. He's stayed true to this, and his eye for the telling detail which confers a crucial insight is remarkable. Whether applied to Cromwell, Cranmer, a pugilistic Axminster shoemaker, a local reforming preacher, or what he is called the unfathomably complex king himself. This comprehensive and humane approach will, it's fair to guess, illuminate his forthcoming book on those new men who surrounded Henry VII, whose liminal reign he has described as caught between two kinds of historical sources as well as two eras. The forthcoming book, based on immense archival trawls, will analyze the development and transmutation of offices of state into the forms of a new style of government and also into the foundation of the Tudor dynasty. In all his work, Dr. Gunn has followed the Victorian historian G.M. Young's injunction, read until you hear the people talking. Over the next weeks, he will explore the subject of how war was experienced by English people in the reign of Henry VIII. And we will, I think it's fair to say, hear the people talking through voices mediated by a consummate historian's skills of subtle psychological insight, wide comparative perspective, immense archival authority, and lively imagination. I look forward to it immensely. Dr. Gunn. Thank you. Um, I must begin by thanking the electors for asking me to deliver these lectures and by thanking all of you for coming. My country has often been to war in my lifetime, yet my personal experience of war is minimal, and I thank God for that. The nearest I've come to being drafted was a febrile rumour that finals were to be cancelled in 1982 and the candidates dispatched to the Falklands. I've rarely seen armed soldiers in public. The closest I've come to aerial attack is to watch the Red Arrows. And the most alarming weapon I've ever had at home was a blunted Austrian cavalry sword liberated from a film set by my grandfather. Yet my parents' generation can never forget that they lived through a war of conscription and rationing and bombing and evacuation. What I hope to explore in these lectures is where the England of Henry VIII stood between these extremes. How regularly, how intensively, how disruptively did the king's wars affect the lives of his subjects? Now you may object at once that this is an ill-conceived question. Surely 
wars before the military revolution of Gustavus Adolphus and Louis XIV mobilized only a small proportion of the population and were too feeble to affect non-combatants in more than passing ways. Or try telling that it's tempting to respond to the French peasants burnt out of their homes by the Black Prince or Henry V. But we're right to ask whether Henry's wars were neither as intrusive as those of the mid-20th century, nor as well-known but often remote as those of the 21st. We shall have to look for evidence of how much Henry's subjects thought about war, heard about war, prepared for war, as well as how much they took part in war or suffered its ill effects. In the back of our minds, we'll have to stand that perhaps legendary plowman who had to be asked to move out of the way for the Battle of Marston Moor, hearing two years into the English Civil War that the forces of King and Parliament were to fight, he asked, what, has them two fallen out then? <laughs> our question may be criticised from another direction. Surely 16th century Englishmen lived in a society in which the state had only imperfectly achieved its Weberian monopoly on the legitimate use of force. They were habituated to bloodshed across a spectrum of situations from the casual child-beating, wife-beating and servant-beating of patriarchal domestic discipline through the bear-baiting and cock-fighting of popular entertainment to the practiced slaughter of pigs and chickens in half a million backyards and beyond that to feud and dueling, riot, rebellion and war. They shared the experience, summed up by John Keegan, that there was considerable congruence between the civil and military facts of medieval life and a minimum, admittedly a very substantial minimum, of divergence between them on the battlefield. They lived in the world indicated by this famous, if controversial, graph, in which violence against the person was perhaps so normal that to be asked to direct it against the king's enemies was more a deployment of transferable skills than the alien butchery for which 20th century recruits had to be pumped up by bayonet drill. Perhaps, or perhaps not. We'll have to ask how Henry's subjects rehearsed, contemplated, and responded to killing and death in war. What scope should we cover in asking these questions? The age of Henry VIII is one of those conveniently loose phrases that will, I hope, allow me to include what I want to include and ignore what I want to ignore. For analytical purposes, it will be useful if we can stretch it from 1475, the occasion of the first great English expedition to France after the traumatic collapse of Lancastrian, Normandy and Gascony in 1450-53, to the 1570s and the inauguration of the militia-trained bands that would form the basis of English military organisation as Elizabeth gave way to the Stuarts. That range also has the advantage of including episodes of civil disorder from the last campaigns of the Wars of the Roses, Bosworth, Stoke and Blackheath, to the Northern Rebellion of 1569-70, to 70, the occasion of the last great mobilisation on English soil for actual combat, as opposed to the preparations to meet successive Spanish armadas, before the civil wars of the 1630s and 1640s. To call this period the age of Henry VIII is a bit more than just cynical appropriation of a recognizable brand. The men who were wise old warriors when Henry was young had fought in 1475. Thomas Howard, second Duke of Norfolk, victor at Flodden, for example, 
or John Risley, the Yorkist courtier who went on to serve as a loyal counsellor to Henry and his father. In the same way, the great commanders of 1569 to 70 had served their apprenticeships in Henry's last campaigns. Thomas Radcliffe, 3rd Earl of Sussex, knighted by Henry at Boulogne in 1544, commanded against the Northern rebels. Edward Fiennes, Lord Clinton, knighted at Leith after the burning of Edinburgh the same year, was made Earl of Lincoln for his role alongside Sussex. Elizabeth's Irish captains too, Sir Nicholas Arnold, Sir Rafe Bagnall, Sir James Croft and Sir William Drury, had all blooded themselves around Boulogne in Henry's closing years. At least one great man, William Paulet, Marquis of Winchester, who mustered men for Henry's first wars, gathered supplies for his last campaigns, and then struggled to finance Mary's and Elizabeth's wars with France and Scotland, was born around the time Edward IV crossed the Channel and died as the trained bands were nearing birth. The English people raise a further problem of definition. Again, I hope I shall be excused a helpfully loose approach. Henry's English subjects, English born and bred, seem to have thought of the Welsh as English, subjects of the English crown, when it suited them. Just as Parliament legislated for an amicable concord and unity between his English and Welsh subjects, a concord to be furthered by the use of the speech or language of English in the Government of Wales. In the same way, they thought and regularly spoke of the English in Ireland, what would later be thought of as the Old English, as English, at least when they were fighting together against the Gaelic opponents of English rule. We shall have to think in due course about how far the different parts taken by these different peoples in Henry's wars helped to constitute their identities and their attitudes towards one another. The age of Henry VIII was certainly an age of war. Just under half the years between 1475 and 1575 saw English military activity against France or Scotland or in the Netherlands, a figure that rises past half when major domestic revolts are added in and reaches nearly three quarters when we consider the sustained effort in Ireland from the Kildare Revolt of 1534 onwards. At least until the 1540s, moreover, the forces involved grew ever larger and at a rate much faster than the population was increasing. In 1475, Edward IV took 13,451 men to France and in 1492, Henry VII took a similar number. Both armies were larger than those that Henry V led on the Agincourt campaign and the conquest of Normandy. Henry VIII presided over a leap upwards in size as he tried to compete with the larger forces available to his Valois and Habsburg rivals. In 1513, he led probably more than 28,000 Englishmen to France, joining to them 7,000 or more troops hired from Germany and the Netherlands, while more than 26,000 marched north to meet the Scots at Flodden. In 1544, the English levies in France totaled over 32,000, while several thousand more faced the Scots, even after the force of some 15,000 that had burnt Edinburgh that summer was withdrawn. Armies sent out of the country were smaller thereafter, but nonetheless substantial. 
Some 21,500 invaded Scotland in 1547, nearly 15,000 in 1548, just over 7,000 campaigned against France in 1557 and in Scotland in 1560, and up to 6,000 occupied La Havre in 1562. And fleets, manned by two or 3,000 men, were sent out in parallel with most of these campaigns. Direct threats to Henry's security produced greater efforts still. To face the pilgrimage of grace in 1536, he envisaged an army of 100,000 men, though his lieutenants mustered only a third of that number, and in the end perhaps led 16,000 to face the 30,000 or more rebels. At the climax of Henry's military efforts, as England faced war against the French and Scots without allies in the summer of 1545, three great armies were prepared to meet a French invasion. They were never fully mobilized, though the Worcestershire contingent, for example, marched three days towards Portsmouth when Oxfordshire mistakenly signaled news of a landing. The Kent men marched all night into Sussex before being countermanded. 1,500 Londoners summoned to Portsmouth made it as far as Farnham before they were sent back, and even the Glamorgan captains got as far as planning their victualling for a concentration on Severnside. These armies totaled 90,131 men, drawn from Wales and England south of the Trent, over and above 12,000 on the fleet, 5,000 sent to Boulogne, and others fighting the Scots. In all, more than 110,000 adult males stood ready to fight, out of perhaps 600,000 or fewer living in southern and south Midland, England and Wales at the time, so nearly one in five men. By the same token, perhaps one in ten of the smaller adult male population of 1513 marched either to Flodden or to Tournay. Henry's wars then certainly mobilized his subjects, or at least a good number of the adult males among them. Even in 1513, most people must have known someone who served. A significant proportion of Henry's subjects in all his realms took part in his wars then, but by no means the majority. That might not matter so much if their compatriots were feeling the effects of war or concerning themselves with war. It's hard to know what people were thinking about in the past, in an age before diaries, let alone Twitter. Yet we can ask what they were reading about and writing to each other about, and perhaps what they were talking about. Let's begin with the most widespread reading matter of the age, almanacs. Ephemeral, mostly cheap, but compelling and potentially useful in avoiding disease, farming efficiently, and preparing for national calamities, almanacs were published in their hundreds. Their style was familiar enough to be readily satirized. During Henry's last war with France, some wag produced a merry prognostication for the year of Christ's incarnation, 1,544, a spoof almanac in verse, featuring in the time-honored tradition of English comedy, a 12-line joke about breaking wind. <laughs> the author caught the flavor of astrological prediction perfectly with the couplet, Saturn and Mars showeth it plain. The eighth day of April, it may chance to rain. <laughs> Yet satire could not stop devotees devouring the product. Sir Edward Don, a Buckinghamshire knight, was one such. His household accounts show that between March 1518 in March 1551, he bought 29 prognostications and almanacs, mostly for a penny each, sometimes two or three at a time. 
that he managed to buy nine between 1518 and 1524, years for which only nine editions printed for the English market now survive, must suggest either his obsessiveness or the numbers of publications that we've lost. Less prominent readers, meanwhile, English and Welsh, left notes of their ownership on various surviving copies. Almanacs predicted political events as well as storms and epidemics, and some authors felt surprisingly free to comment on the great and the good. One edition for 1517 speculated, not unreasonably, but perhaps rather cheekily, that while Henry VIII was under the influence of Venus, he would be likely to pass the time in honor among fair ladies in most noble manner. More dangerously, one for 1539 suggested that the set of stars in the early part of the year shall a little grieve him and shall let him in causes of marriages. When dealing with popular rebels like those in the Southwest in 1497, the allusions to current affairs could be more direct still. One writer for 1498 predicted that the kings and princes shall subdue their adversaries as said the last year in my prognostications, whereby Cornish men, if they had been wise, might have been wary. Keen to prove the accuracy of his predictions, another author counted off in his 1544 edition nine of his predictions for 1543 that had been proved correct, such as the suggestion that the alliance between the King of France and the Duke of Cleves would not remain fast nor durable. Of a sample of 93 almanacs, presenting prognostications for specific years, published in England or on the continent but in English, between 1498 and 1569, 28, nearly one in three, made some specific reference to war, whether to its presence or its absence. Now this might seem an unimpressive proportion, but 21 are so fragmentary that it's hard to tell what they covered. And indeed others have headings for sections on peace and war or on the prospects for individual rulers, of which no detail survives. Of peace and war was a regular section heading for Chaspalat of Borchloem, commended by one translator as an author known of old for an expert master in that science, whose predictions were published in English regularly between 1517 and 1535, and later writers used the same or a similar caption. Buyers could choose between reassuringly local observers of the heavens, Anthony Ascombe at York, William Bourne at Gravesend, William Kenningham at Norwich, Leonard Diggs in Kent, Lewis Vaughan at Gloucester, Henry Lowe and John Securis at Salisbury, and more exotic experts, such as Antonius de Montulmo or Achilles Permingasa. More exotic still was Nostradamus, whose predictions appeared in English from 1559. It's hard to say what readers were to make of cryptic lines like, in the peace shall be mortal war. And one wonders how books fared on the English market that promised so consistently to France supreme victory, France to be greatly augmented, to triumph, to magnify, and the enemies of France in ruin and in subjection to the monarchs of France. Yet his publishers persevered with at least 11 editions between, 11 English editions between 1559 and 1568. If Nostradamus was unnerving but vague, some authors were much more specific about events. Caspar foresaw that Henry VIII would be inclined to war in 1523 and would spend much on it. That year's parliament voted unprecedented subsidies for an army that marched to within striking distance of Paris. 
1534, Lark predicted that Charles V would win towns. He was wrong, but only by a few months, for in June 1535, the emperor spent the plundered gold of the Incas on the conquest of Tunis. Others made general forecasts, which were at least clear, such as that the conjunctions of 1548 between Saturn and Mars and Jupiter and Mars signified battle and war and much contrariousness, or suggested helpful principles, such as that a year when Christmas Day fell on a Saturday would see great war in many countries, sunshine on the 12th day after Christmas, wind on 12th night, or red clouds on the morning of New Year's Day were equally indicators of conflict. Others again tied their comments on war to professional or temperamental groups, subject to different astrological influences. Achilles Pirmingasa told those subject to Mars, including soldiers, captains of war, butchers, hangmen and Turks, that they might go on a journey or make war profitably in spring 1546, if they be not diseased in the shoulders and legs. For some, the identification of influential planets with vengeful pagan deities sounded more than coincidental. William Kenningham warned that in winter 1563-4, as Elizabeth's first ill-fated intervention in the French wars of religion dragged towards a peace treaty, Mars angular in the house of regal power and empery thirsteth to bathe his sword in blood. For some, the predictions of woe were alarmingly immediate. One reader, probably from the Chorley family of Lancashire, copied out of the peace and war section of an almanac for 1544, now apparently lost, the warning that principally in our realm here there would be variance and open war in which many men would be spoiled and slain, houses, castles and cities shall be taken, burnt and destroyed, and the people shall be without mercy or pity. For the Almanac's readers, their predictions perhaps supplanted those of an older brand of prophecy. Prophecies attributed to Merlin, Bede, Thomas the Rhymer, John of Bridlington and other soothsayers were much discussed in the 1530s and their circulation forbidden by statute in 1542, 1550 and 1563. Much of their power rested in the way they tied historic wars to doom-laden readings of the future, generally couched in terms of heraldic animal imagery. The great battles in England of the Wars of the Roses, pitting the son against the father, the Battle of Bosworth, where the blue boar of the Earl of Oxford and the heart's head of the Stanleys slew the white boar of Richard III, Flodden, where the white lion of the Howards overcame the red lion of Scotland, set the scene for cataclysmic wars between north and south, east and west, featuring invasions from France, Flanders, Denmark, Norway and Ireland, thousands slain, one king killed in battle and another beheaded, before the victor set off for conquests in France and the Holy Land. Not just English history, but international events of the 1520s were keyed into the predictions to increase their immediacy. The wars between England, France and the Habsburgs, the Ottoman invasions and the sack of Rome. The prophecies were formulaic, but insistent on the troubles war would bring. Many a comely knight shall be cast under feet. Many a wife and maid in mourning be brought. The streets of London will run with streams bloody. The more part of the world shall be destroyed. 
For greater insight, if not reassurance, some readers triangulated astrological science with older predictions. One added to a French printed prognostication of 1568, notes in English of a prophecy 400 years old, foretelling the wrath of God upon us for 1573 and a great battle for 1575. More upbeat prophets could be found. A long treatise of the 1510s, full of practical suggestions for the reform of Irish government, digressed suddenly onto an old prophecy that the English king who brought Ireland to order would proceed to subdue France, rescue the Greeks from the Turks, liberate the Holy Land, and die Emperor of Rome. <laughs> but this vision was in the minority. If the predominant tone of the prophets and astrologers was pessimistic, at least some of the latter offered a remedy. Lewis Vaughan promised for 1559, war, contention, strife, manslaughter, commotions, and tumults for winter, great preparation and going forth to war for spring, when many shall come to their end by the sword, and mortal war, contentions, and bloodshed for summer. No wonder he ended thus. Therefore, let us pray unto God, the author of peace, to turn, convert, and change dissensions, discords, commotions, and war into peace and concord, for all things is in the hands of God. Peace and war did indeed feature regularly in the prayers of his contemporaries. From Cranmer's first English prayer book of 1549 onwards, ministers and congregations used the collects for peace at every matins and evensong, and prayed at matins, give peace in our time, O Lord, because there is none other that fighteth for us, but only thou, O God. For centuries before that, the Sarum Rite had included a Latin prayer for peace in the canon of the Mass, and English instructions at the bidding of the beads to pray for the unity and peace of all Christian realms, and in especial for the good state, peace, and tranquility of the realm of England, and for peace both on land and on water. When all this worrying gave way to real war, English kings and princes since Edward III had sent out official newsletters to tell the realm of their doings. Henry VII did so regularly. In 1489, he sent out at least two different letters about the progress of his army in Brittany and the flight of the French before them, one of which was passed on to the Pastons and the other to the town of Colchester. In 1492, he wrote to the authorities at York, explaining how he had besieged Boulogne, well garrisoned and fortified with bulwarks, fossebrays and other subtleties, for 16 days and done great damage before accepting highly generous peace terms from the French. In 1497, knowing that the Londoners would be desirous to understand the certainty of such feat and exploits of war as our army hath done, Henry wrote to the mayor, explaining how James IV of Scots had first shamefully fled at the approach of the force sent under the Earl of Surrey to relieve the siege of Norham, and then fled shamefully and suddenly when Surrey entered Scotland to offer him battle. And interestingly, while crowing over the Scots, Henry did not bury bad news, admitting that his troops had returned home sooner than expected, despite the great efforts he had made to provision them, and vowing to investigate the causes of this premature end to the campaign, which had been full greatly to his displeasure. By the 1520s, such news was deployed to chivy taxpayers. Details of the successes of Suffolk's army in France in 1523 sent out with requests for early payment of the subsidies to sustain its progress. 
Other royal letters recounted the defeat of rebellion with carefully nuanced detail. Henry VII told the Bishop of Bath and Wells how Perkin Warbeck had been repulsed from the walls of Exeter and now faced the final conclusion of the matter in confrontation with the king and his host royal. A month later, he painted a picture for the mayor and citizens of Waterford of Perkin's capture and the dramatic punition of this great rebellion as the commons of Devon and Cornwall presented themselves before the king and his commissioners with halters round their necks, begging full humbly with lamentable cries for our grace and remission. Mary told the gentry of Shropshire how she had discomfited Wyatt's rebels despite their march on London. She named the captured captains and revealed that interrogation showed how their true aim was not to oppose her foreign marriage, but to destroy our person and deprive us of our estate and dignity royal. Some documents surviving in private archives may be partial copies of royal letters of this sort. One that reached the moors of Lowsley lists the destruction wrought on the coast of Brittany by the naval raid of summer 1558. 23 townships burnt, together with many gentlemen's houses, one of them as fair a house as any in Brittany and was finished but one year ago, and 57 ships burnt in the harbour at Conquet. Lists of the composition of royal armies also circulated. The Abbot of Burton copied one, listing the size of the retinues for the 1492 campaign into the Abbey's register, next to a prognostication of English conquests in France attributed to the great Turk's personal astrologer. Lists of captains with their badges and banners, like those for 1475 and 1513, were passed between heralds and other aficionados. In 1557, the Earl of Bath procured two copies of a breakdown of King Philip's forces in the Netherlands, capturing the international flavour of his army with its awkwardly anglicised terms. 6,000 Swartrutter's horsemen, or Schwarzer Reiter, German cavalrymen, and 2,000 Lance Knights of Almain, or Landsknecht infantry, and reflecting the optimism of Habsburg planning with its, assur its assurance that there was provision for six months of campaigning for the whole army in all things. Notes of the terms of treaties, too, might be added to private papers, as Sir Thomas Corden or Sir William Moore did with the Treaty of Cateau Cambrésis in 1559, or the Earl of Bath with the Treaty of Edinburgh of 1560. So it was into this world of official standardised manuscript news that printed news pamphlets entered. Their rise was not as rapid in England as in France, Germany or the Netherlands, but by fits and starts they gained ground and they were certainly read. In 1513, two printers produced accounts of the Battle of Flodden. In addition to this original of one of them, each now survives in a handwritten transcript, suggesting their circulation and concentrated consumption. One caused uproar at Norwich in 1515, when a Lancashire priest defaced it in protest that local insistence that his countrymen had fled in battle, leaving the East Anglians to win it. By the 1540s, government control and private news gathering were blending to produce more substantial productions. In 1544, inaccurate pamphlets about the Earl of Hertford's devastating invasion of Scotland had to be called in for destruction before its events were narrated in an approved 32-page text that began life as a letter to Lord Russell. When it came to the Pinky Campaign of 1547, 
William Patton, who had accompanied the army, produced an account of over 300 pages, illustrated with maps of the action. The survival of a copy in at least one gentry family collection suggests that while presumably not inexpensive at 300 pages, it did circulate. A printed bird's eye view of the battle was also produced, the first to depict a battlefield in the British Isles. The Northern Rising in 1569-70 generated a slew of pamphlets, but as we shall see, they'd been anticipated by a steady run of publications about the French Wars of Religion. As the letter to Russell suggests, news about war was also included in private letters. Those on campaign wrote home to their families, friends and colleagues, as they had done during the Hundred Years' War, and those letters were then passed on to others. From 1475, we have Thomas Stoner's cheery letter from the camp at Guine, recounting the comeuppance of an arrogant Frenchman and speculating that, I suppose, the king will go the next way to Paris, and Sir John Paston's more downbeat account of the end of the campaign. From 1513, we have one detailed letter sent to a Worcester merchant from the siege of Terouanne and passed on by him to the Prior of Worcester, and another to the Earl of Devon from Guingat, listing the French prisoners from the Battle of the Spurs, describing Henry's conquest of Terouanne, and repeatedly thanking God and St. George for the king's successes and his most amiable and loving relationship with his ally, the Emperor Maximilian. In 1557, Francis Earl of Bedford sent several reports from the Saint-Quentin campaign to Sir William Cecil, and in between their arrival, the Countess kept Cecil informed of the latest news the Earl had sent. Those at great towns and other information hubs passed on wartime news as it arrived. In the 1490s, John Marney, a student at Furnival's Inn, sent word to his most reverent and worshipful father, yes, he was asking for money, <laughs> that Berwick had narrowly escaped capture in a plot orchestrated by a Scottish friar. Some 50 years later, John Pulston reported to his father in Wrexham that the French king is gone from Boulogne with no more harm doing than I have written you in my last letter. In the 1470s and 80s, the Seeley family sent news of international politics and the prospects of a war and peace backwards and forwards between London, Calais and Bruges. And in the 1540s, the Johnson family trading at Calais like the Seeleys were doing the same. Great noble households also served as centres of news. William Paston wrote to Sir John Paston from their Lord, the Earl of Oxford's castle at Headingham in 1488 about the English intervention in Brittany and the family exchanged news about the campaign thereafter. And news in letters might easily be combined with other sources of wartime information. Adam Raleigh wrote from London in July 1545 to Sir Richard Edgecombe at Stonehouse by Plymouth with news of the English and French fleets and of events in Scotland. He enclosed a proclamation about privateering and a prognostication taken from an almanac. Those in command of English forces in different theatres naturally needed news of events elsewhere and received it both by official communication and by letters from friends. In autumn 1523, Cardinal Wolsey and Brian Tuke sent the Earl of Surrey at Newcastle news of the progress of the Duke of Suffolk's campaign in France. Surrey was to pass it on, both to his subordinates and to the Scots, to serve not only as a comfort and to all those that would favour the king's desire, but also an abashment and great discourage to all those that be of the French faction. In September 1544, Francis Earl of Shrewsbury, Royal Lieutenant in the North, was told of Henry's capture of Boulogne, and in August 1557, the Privy Council wrote to him about the victory of Saint-Quentin, 
Chidings followed up in private letters from Sir William Cordell, Master of the Rolls. When invasion threatened, news spread fast and oral transmission mixed with written. William Rowcliffe wrote to his master John Trevelyan, probably in 1545, of how he had heard that Sir George Carew had come down to Devon post-haste to warn of 1,500 ships at sea, Frenchmen and other, who had pointed to land in divers places within the realm before St George's Day next coming. The number of ships had perhaps grown in the telling. Sometimes correspondents, mindful of this risk, qualified their news. Christopher Plater told the Earl of Bath in June 1558 as news that my Lord of Northumberland goeth northward with all speed, but distanced himself a little from his next two items. The talk also went here that the French king never had such number in the field so ready in arms as he hath at this present. The like preparation, the talk goeth, shall be here. Chroniclers, such as Robert Fabian, had to make the same calculations. At London in 1512, it was known that English troops were taking ship on the south coast bound for the continent, but the details were foggy. When the first and second contingents left, there was no certainty where they should land. There was a rumour, a fame ran, that they were going to help the Pope against the King of France, which after a fashion they were, for Henry fought his first war with France as a loyal son of Julius II. In practice, they were, as Fabian then realised, upon the border of France and of Spain. He gave a dramatic narrative of a successful Anglo-Spanish siege of Bayonne, almost marred by a Spanish massacre of the inhabitants, an atrocity fortunately averted by the strength and politic means of the Englishmen. Shortly afterwards, he wrote in the margin, all this matter of the winning of this town is untrue. Most of our examples of written news come from the aristocracy, gentry, higher clergy, and merchant classes. Given their personal engagement in diplomacy, politics, trade, and the affairs of the wider church, perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that the tidings they exchanged spread beyond England's wars to those of Europe and the Near East. We find discussion of the Treaty of London of 1518 with its promise of a universal peace to be established amongst all Christian princes, and of the Ottoman Safavid Wars, of the Battle of Mohach and the Colonna's raid on Rome in 1526, of the likely outbreak of war between France and the Habsburgs in 1551 and its relationship to Ottoman attacks. Such correspondence suggests a lively appetite to understand England's place in European politics and the context for Henry's wars. Interest was intensified further by the sharpening religious polarisation of the 1560s and 1570s. Just as printers aimed a run of publications at that section of the English public concerned about the ministers of the gospel and their supporters in France and outraged by the unnaturalness, cruelty and murder perpetrated by their persecutors, so Sir William Moore collected manuscript documents illustrating the French crisis of 1562 and the Bacon family and their friends sent one another news of the iniquities of Charles IX, Rex in Christianissimus, the most unchristian king, and of Sir Humphrey Gilbert's expedition to Flushing in aid of the Dutch rebels. Oral news, spreading among humbler subjects, may have been more confined in its interests, but it certainly encompassed warfare. Lawrence Taylor was arrested in Essex in around 1490 for travelling through East Anglia, telling people he had been shipped back to Yarmouth after his capture in Brittany, 
where he had witnessed the death or imprisonment of most of the king's forces. John Brown, Tinker, was in trouble at Hereford in 1514 for claiming that while the English had killed the Scots king at the Scottish field, Flodden, they had not really won the battle, having lost their guns so that the Scots would soon invade again. Such news might stimulate unhealthy debate. In January 1546, in a winter of high food prices, following the poor harvest of 1545, William Rye and Anthony Sproston were riding across northeast Norfolk from North, North Walsham to Holt. Rye said, or at least so he told the Norwich magistrates when questioned, that it was an hard world for poor folks and prayed to God, if it were his pleasure, to send a peace. Sproston agreed that if it were not peace shortly, it should make a bare England. Rye opined loyally that it would be even worse for realms such as France and Scotland, which were in war as well as England, but which the king's most noble grace has most victoriously and nobly overcome. Sproston was not convinced. I pray you, he asked, what did the English men in Scotland but came in on a Sunday in the morning when some were in bed and some at church and by a false traitor of Edinburgh came in at Edinburgh and there did but rob and steal. Oral news sometimes spread ahead of official correspondence. In Ireland, in September 1542, the deputy had to send to court for confirmation of the rumour that there was open war with France and Scotland. And in July 1544, the commanders on the northern borders were hearing sundry tales and news of the King's Majesty's journey and royal voyage into France, and also of my Lord of Norfolk's proceedings and doings in France. And they had to ask their colleagues in the south for reliable updates. Oral discussion of military events at times came close to the world of prophecy. In March 1554, Bernard Sanderson overtook John Harrison on the road from Colney to Norwich. They discussed the price of horses, news of musters, and rumours that the French and Scots would invade between Easter and Whitson. Harrison claimed to have asserted patriotically that if they did invade, they shall come to as hard a breakfast as ever they came to, by the grace of God. But Sanderson heard him say something much more in the vein of Thomas the Rhymer, how there would be three battles in the coming months, and we shall see the King of France in Norwich by midsummer. In similar vein, as the Treaty of Cateau-Cambrécy was under negotiation, Nicholas Coleman dreamt that Scotsmen, Frenchmen and others, disguised as beggars, were about to pass through England, setting towns on fire. Those who fought also recorded information in more systematic ways. Campaign diaries were numerous by comparison with the few surviving from the Hundred Years' War. For the 1513 campaign in France, we have a Latin work by John Taylor, royal chaplain and clerk of the parliaments. It's detailed down to the numbers of men killed in various skirmishes. And it's personal, commenting on some things Taylor himself saw. It's admiring both of the king and of his army, and it has literary pretensions with allusions to Neptune and reflections on the fall of James IV of Scots. Very different and more typical is a list in English from the same year of the progress of the vanguard into France, noting the dates when camp was pitched at different places and key events in the campaign. For the invasion of France in 1523, a similar but more idiosyncratic work survives. It too records the progress of the army day by day, but gives a strong impression of what it felt like to be inside it. 
noting what our men or our gunners did and commenting on noteworthy or sensational events of all sorts. Sir William Skeffington, shot through his shoe but unharmed. Lord Leonard Grey, taking a position from 200 Frenchmen with just 20 English. The capture of Bray-sur-Somme, which was the key of all France and was never won before. From Boulogne in 44, we have at least two pieces in the same vein. One recounts the entire campaign, from the King's departure from Westminster to the French counterattacks of October. It concentrates on the actions of the most victorious King Henry VIII, but still speaks of our hackbutters, our artillery and our men. The other records the progress of our soldiers, our Englishmen, from Calais to Boulogne before the King arrived, the very hot skirmishes with the French as the siege was set, and the development of the siege, breaking off before the fall of the town. Like the 1523 diary, it celebrates the deeds of valiant captains and gives the view from within the army, referring to events mysterious to the majority, such as the arrival of a French trumpeter, the cause of whose coming was not commonly declared, and the appearance of ships off the coast, the origin of which was not yet perfectly known, but it's thought that they be the Spanish fleet. Elizabethan captains in Ireland have been investigated by Rory Rappel, and Elizabethan volunteers in the French Wars of Religion and the Dutch Revolt by David Trim. English adaptation to the tactical and technical innovations of continental warfare has been tested by Gervais Phillips, Mark Fissel, and James Raymond. In these lectures, I shall draw gratefully upon all this sterling work. Yet apart from two pioneering studies by my doctoral supervisor, Cliff Davis, the wider impact of war seems to have been neglected. Certainly, there's nothing like the academic industry surviving, sorry, surrounding the Hundred Years' War or the British Civil Wars. Why this comparative neglect? Insofar as the history of war has been left to military historians, there has not been much to excite them. The generals are boring, or at least more exciting as courtiers than as generals, <laughs> and, the battles, and the battles unspectacular. Our period lies between the age of, Henry the, of uh, Edward III and Henry V, of Cressy, Poitiers and Agincourt, and that of Cromwell and Marlborough, of Marston Moor, Dunbar and Blenheim. Its military history has all too often been told, not in the epic mode, but in that of tragicomedy. Henry VIII at the comic end, hoisted onto his horse in his bulbous armour with its 54-inch waistline. Sir Edward Howard at the tragic, plunging to a watery death in a quixotic attack in rowing boats on the becalmed French fleet. There are no definitively new weapon systems or tactics or strategies to evaluate. In the first great age of pike and shot and trace italienne artillery fortification, the English seemed to prefer bills to pikes, bows to shot, and Henry's old-fashioned coastal forts, as rounded as his armours, to the beguiling geometry of the new continental bastions. What victories on land there were have been hard to work into our island story. Flodden and Pinky, a bloody embarrassment to a United Kingdom. Samford Courtney and Dussendale, an inglorious slaughter of peasant protectors, uh, peasant possessors. Those in search of swashbuckling glamour have hurried past to Elizabeth's reign, to Drake and Grenville and the Armada War, a climax to which Henry provides a prelude of questionable value summed up by the fate of the Mary Rose, toppling, overweighted like her master, into the waters of the Solent. Our attention has also been diverted by more seductive or apparently important events at the time. 
The history of foreign relations has concentrated on a newly institutionalized diplomacy of resident ambassadors and reflective state papers and on the practice of competitive display. The field of cloth of gold makes much more of a splash than the Battle of the Spurs. The recovery of the crown strength after the Wars of the Roses and the destructive politics of Henry's court have stimulated analysis of political change at the center and in the regions as has the debate over a putative Tudor revolution in government. Economic and social historians have seen the period as the opening of a phase of significant change, whether of the transition from feudalism to capitalism, with the atrophy of serfdom, the enclosure of common land and open fields, and the rise of the cloth industry, or with the beginnings of sustained population recovery after the 15th century slump. Change in all these areas has seemed more important than the paltry shifts evident in warfare. Yet one of the great lessons of the 20th century expansion of social and cultural history is that something does not have to be new to be important, that l'histoire immobile is just as central to the lives of those who live through it as l'histoire événementielle. If this is true of feast and famine, drought and flood, birth and death, why should it not be true of war and peace? And like those pairings, it may be that we should look for the rhythms of diplomatic confrontation, state capacity, and royal personality that made martial decades alternate with and differ from peaceful ones. Perhaps the difference we should be looking for is not only that between the 1540s and the 1940s, but also that between the 1540s or the 1940s and the 1500s and the 1970s. Above all, though, Henry's wars have been eclipsed by his Reformation. Now, there's no doubt the Reformation is important, but we only know how important because we have been arguing about it so intensely for so long. 60 years ago, we didn't have a locally, socially, and culturally contextualized history of the English Reformation. Then three or four waves of scholars, not least my predecessors in this lectureship, Jack Scarisbrick and Geoffrey Elton, Keith Thomas, Patrick Collinson, and Peter Lake, went into the archives and through the cultural world of 16th and early 17th century England and gave us one. Today, we have only small parts of a locally, socially, and culturally contextualized history of the Tudors' wars. The same archives and the same contexts can be examined to remedy that. The Reformation has been considered in terms of its impact on communities of different sorts. And in my second lecture, I shall examine the impact of war on towns and villages across England. The Reformation has been tested for its effects on different social groups, clergy, gentry, yeomanry, and in the third lecture, I shall concentrate on the caste most closely associated with war, the nobility and gentry. The Reformation has been seen as a contributor to economic and social change on many levels, from the redistribution of land at the dissolution of the monasteries to the birth of the ethic of capitalism. In the fourth lecture, we shall consider the impact of war on trade, industry and agriculture. Much has been written about the psychological influences of the Reformation, from changing religious experience to individualism and companionate marriage. In the fifth lecture, we shall see what we can of the physical and emotional effects of war on individuals and groups. And lastly, the Reformation has been given a central role in the consolidation of the English state and of English national identity, bonfire night and all. In the last lecture, we shall consider the role of war in the relationship between the king and his subjects and in the making of Englishness. It seems to me that what we need is a history of war in the age of Henry VIII 
that will have some of the range, richness, and subtlety of the present historiography of the Reformation. I cannot construct that history in six lectures. I cannot do it at all in the way the subject deserves. But I hope that in the coming weeks we shall think constructively together about how such a history might look.